Hello, and welcome to the Immersive Design Podcast. This is your host, Brian McGowan. Today on our first official episode, we're going to be joined by our special guest, Andrew Porter. Without further ado, let's get right into it. So today we have Andrew Porter. He's a creative director, storyteller. He's worked on projects uh, with Merlin Entertainment, such as Oblivion, The Black Hole, Kung Fu Panda Academy, and The Gruffalo. He has his own company, Firefly Creations, where he's a creative director. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Brian. Uh, so I think the first thing that you know I'd like to ask you is a very general question. What is the immersive design field to you? Immersive design, a word that is uh, quite common in everything from buying TV appliances to kettles and uh, your toaster can be immersive now. And it's an interesting thing that kind of gets thrown around and immersion to me is, is a real point which I take very seriously because it's kind of the like the holy grail of attraction design. When we talk about immersive environments and immersion in the theme park entertainment field, we are talking about everything from how an attraction smells, how an attraction looks and is presented to the guests, what stories are we wanting to take our guests on a journey for, and all the sights and sounds, including any of the hardware that we use, either a roller coaster, a flat ride, or a dark ride shooting adventure, how do we hide that and bring that into the story? What you want a guest to leave an attraction thinking and feeling is they understand the story. They understand the emotional connections that we were trying to drive through that attraction. They understand what the benefit it was for coming to that attraction with their family. One thing we need to remember is immersion comes from the family that, that go on it. Is this attraction aimed at teenagers? Is it aimed at very young children? Is it aimed at parents? Or is the whole point of it to market or to tell history? So immersion is a very complex story and it really starts with that creative brief and understanding what is the compelling proposition of the ride that we are designing. Then we work out the different points that we want to get across to our guests that they leave the attraction feeling. And the only way we can work out if that's immersive is when the attraction opens and we talk to our guests. How did it make you feel? What did you get out of it? Has it strengthened you as a family or a friendship unit? And when you go home, will you remember this? That's what immersion means to me. I think that's an excellent answer. Um, how did you end up you know, entering the, uh, the field? I've, I've been a fan of theme parks since I could walk. Um, I always kind of begged my uh, family, my, my parents, to take me to an attraction that was called the American Adventure that was uh, quite a, a popular theme park in the UK. Sadly gone now and all been, all been destroyed. But I refused to go on any of the rides. I was absolutely terrified of them. In fact, I would scream and cry and throw tantrums because I'd, I was absolutely terrified of roller coasters or rock flumes. I mean, I was even terrified of a merry-go-round. I mean, that's how bad I was. So for some reason, I was just so obsessed with the sights and the sounds and the activity that was going on, the music and the sense of feeling. So I would watch the the, the show that would happen in Silver Dollar City where the cowboys would run up and down and shoot each other and fall off buildings and 
Um, I'm even getting a bit emotional now remembering those sorts of memories of all of the play activities. So while that was going on, our parents would, would take us on walks in the countryside. They would, they would, take, us, they would take us out uh, just on general day outs to museums. And I kind of fell in love with the storytelling. It wasn't until I was 14 years old when I went to Alton Towers with, with my friends and I was forced on a roller coaster called Nemesis. And anyone who knows what Nemesis is, is a pretty foreboding piece of hardware that when you look at it, um, incites fear into anyone that kind of sees it. Certainly for someone who'd never really been on a big roller coaster before to, to go and face that beast. And I remember being filled with so much dread as we were going up the lift hill of if I'm going to survive this or not. And uh, the ride finished. I was inspired. I, I felt so good about myself. I, I, I had a new level of confidence. And I, I think that's something that, that is forgotten when, when we design theme parks. A lot of it comes from the commercial sense that this ride has to bring money in. It has to bring people through the gates because that's why we do the job that we do. But theme parks have a great ability to inspire confidence in, in, in the guests that come and visit our attractions. And certainly I started to fall in love with the sounds and the smells and being able to influence friends and families in a positive light. I, I wanted to be involved in an industry where I could use my storytelling and I could use my design and all of the things I believe about immersive entertainment and, and connecting to an audience and making people's lives better through it. You go to a theme park to forget who you are. You, you go there to have a day with your family and friends and make the world a little bit lighter. And uh, that's what we've lost through this situation we're going with at the moment with COVID. And it's something that I think people will want back more than ever. And we will be there ready and waiting to bring that light back to the world again. So I thought that it was, you know, kind of interesting that you were saying, um, you know, telling the story that's, you know, one of the most important parts and, you know, along with the thrill uh, that you can get from a ride. Um, how is it that a creative director can bring forth, you know, um, someone else's story. A lot of times you're adapting, um, you know, something that's already been created, whether it's a movie or a book. Um, you know, how do you put your own personal creativity into someone else's vision? Well, I think, I think when it comes to design in, in general, you know, we've, there's, it's, a, it's, a big, it's a big discussion. It depends on your audience and who you are designing for. So for instance, if we're designing a theme park, it's got a very different design language to if you're designing an amusement park. They're two very different worlds and you're designing for two very different audiences. Yes, they've got some of the same rides, um, like um, let's say a, a top spin. A top spin at an amusement park would look very different to a top spin at a theme park. That conversation could be taken into a museum. It could be taken into a, a nature walk in a country park. It could be in any sort of marketing campaign or live event or show that you do, you know, the audiences are all very, very different. So I don't approach a project thinking that if this is a IP project based on a movie, or if it's actually one of my own movies or one of my own projects that I've been working on. The point is we have a story to tell to immerse an audience into a world. Now, when you take a movie, that movie, you've got the ability to entertain over a two hour period. Over that two hours, we understand who the characters are. We become emotionally connected to the characters. We know the stories that they've been on and the worlds that they've been involved in. So there's a certain level of when you do an IP attraction that 
let's just say 80% of the guests coming know the film, they know the brand and they know the characters. It doesn't mean that we should alienate the other 20% because they don't know what this is. We have to entertain and immerse those guys as much as we design for the fans. So how do we design the world to be able to tell the stories without having two hours? What are the colours? What's the smells again? What are the sounds? Is this a dark and scary area? Then the music is dark and scary. The same emotions that we use in movies and we, we, we use in storytelling are used in theme parks. They're just adapted in a different way to do it quickly. We have to tell our story within a two, three, four minute attraction or a ride. And we have to get across who these characters are, why they're doing it. But we also have to make it fun. And that's why we always talk about the compelling proposition. What is it? So for instance, if we are doing an, an attraction, say for Kung Fu Panda, Kung Fu Panda is a beautiful story of a panda who was adopted by a goose and he has no confidence. And his confidence is found through Kung Fu and that adventure he goes on. So when we design a theme park land, let's weave in the story of training. Let's make people confident by the attractions that they're going on. If you go on this attraction, you will be level one. If you go and do the show and learn Kung Fu with Poe, you are level two. And we're working up to be level three where you get to go on the roller coaster. If we can design lands that, in, that instill this confidence by the design language and everything that we're doing in them, we can add to a person's life from an immersion point of view, that they entered the land not wanting to go on the roller coaster. They were too scared to go on it. But spending an hour, two hours in the land with these characters, building up their confidence, saying, you can do this. If you go on this ride, which is really tame, you can advance, you can advance, you can be better. You've had all the training that you need to take on this big beast. And they go on it and they come off and they are Kung Fu masters. They are Kung Fu panda masters. That is what we talk about and that's how we design lands. Regardless of what the IP, who it's for, we look at the core storytelling pieces of those pieces of, of, of movie or footage and we weave it into a way that works in themed entertainment. Well, I think that's, you know, an, an excellent way of putting it because, you know, a lot of uh, attractions, you know, they try to retell the story by just showing you, here's an image from that, you know, let's say Peter Pan, for example. It's just, you know, here's a scene from Peter Pan, you know, here's another scene, here's another scene, here's another scene. And in that way, you know, it's you're experiencing the story. But I think that's a great way of looking at it with Kung Fu Panda is, you know, instead of just saying, well, here's, you know, um, what Poe was doing in the beginning of the movie, here's another scene from when they're fighting or from when they're training, you know, it's making you're sort of like Poe, you know, like you're too scared to, you know, go off and do things, but you can actually do great things if you really, you know, try and if you have confidence. So let's, you know, make you go through the same journey as him and then you can face, you know, the big uh, struggle at the end, just like he did. And I think that's, you know, and kind of interesting way of making the character sympathize and empathize with the main character and kind of go through the same journey without, um, you know, having to literally, you know, show them frames from the movie. Equally as well, I mean, when you're talking about that style of attraction, um, it's very different to what we, we were kind of discussing, because what we were discussing was a land development. 
when you're talking about an individual attraction, um, like the, the Gruffalo River Ride Adventure at Chessington Wood Adventures or even Room on the Broom, um, which, do, which do take you through sort of those movie experiences, you've got, always got to look at your attraction. I always, the way I always say to people is, Andy, how do I design this attraction or how do I make it compelling? And I think one of the biggest mistakes I see when, when I see, um, you know, work that I'm working on with people is they go, right, it's going to happen. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is going to come from the left. This is going to happen from the right. Smoke's going to come up from underneath. Lightning's going to go off in the scene and you've overwhelmed your audience very, very quickly and they can't process what's happening. Every attraction that we, we make from a dark ride should have a heartbeat in it. It should have its peaks and its troughs. Because if you peak for too long, your audience becomes over, they, they become exhausted, they become overwhelmed with everything that you're throwing at them. So it's about taking breaths, taking beats. And it's something I learned, um, and I'm still learning to, to be honest, through the work that I've done on my horror attractions in the past of when people are walking through an attraction, the suspense corridor, it gets dark, it gets light, you've got something happening here. Maybe you have nothing happen here and you let the guest get into that world that they're in. So when you talk about something like, like Peter Pan and, um, and going through those different sets and that story, it's perfectly okay to do because you can still immerse people into that world. But again, what does it smell like? How is it paced? What are, we, what are we hearing? What are we seeing? Are we using footage? Are we using animatronics? Are we using live actors? Is that something we do? Are we asking the guests to immerse themselves and interact within the environment? So Room on the Broom at Chessington World Adventure was a story by Julia Donaldson. And we scripted that attraction to have guests walk through on their own pace, but they get to interact with the characters in the story that they hear at night when their parents read them the story before they go to bed. So we're coming into their worlds and we're coming into their family's routine for putting their child to sleep, so our attraction had better match up to that. So hopefully what you have in the conversation is at night is, Oh, we're going to read Room on the Broom. Oh, mommy, we were there. We helped the dog. We helped the witch and we ran away from the dragon. Can you remember when daddy screamed when the dragon jumped out? Those are the golden nuggets of an attraction that make them more than just a cold piece of fiberglass. The fiberglass animatronics become real because you have influenced a family's experience in that world as they were walking through it. And as a creative director, I have to orchestrate and design spots within an attraction that encourages those guest experiences. When they go home, they have those emotional connections. And it is probably one of the most challenging things that we do. I, I definitely think so. So what would you say that, you know, they hire you to work on a certain project? What would you be doing day to day so what I do as a creative director, it's, it's, it's my job to orchestrate the chaos oh, <laughs> yeah, to, to, a, some, to some state. It's, we always, I say I'm a conductor of the orchestra. So the, we have our woodwind department, which is our audio. We have our, we have our string section, which could be video content. We have our drums and our percussion, which are the architects and civil engineers. Uh, we have... You know, we have all of these, we have the choir who could be the hardware, the roller coaster that's kind of coming in. And, and we kind, I kind of approach all of the projects that I do like a ballet that is being orchestrated. And it's my job to take each individual department and make sure they are inspired, 
they are passionate, they're comfortable, and they can work together to create something that is truly magical. But all of the time I will start by looking at a project and thinking, we're going to start here. This is our starting point. It's going to be a roller coaster that has got a dark ride element to it. It's going to have launch sections in there and the client wants it to appeal to a teenage audience. So we have to then start looking at what's the theme, what's cool in the market, what market trends are out there at the moment. Then I'll work with some concept artists to create three sorts of images to go to the client and say, this is what we've been thinking. We think this is great for a teenage market. We think this ride's gonna be wonderful as it explodes out of an alien's mouth, for instance, um, and dives into a swamp of thorns. And when it dives into the swamp of thorns, we get stopped. And as it stops, all these tentacles are coming out of nowhere, stopping our train from going. But suddenly there's a blast of fire as these agents come in and save us, which frees our vehicle and we explode at 100 miles an hour out of a, a hole that's full of smoke and flame. We, I start to kind of build that picture and sell that to the client. Once that's understood, we work with architects, we start to work with the, the roller coaster companies to start to create a ballet. How is this paced? How does the station look? How does all these bits start to go together? Is there gonna be storytelling? Or is it going to be a ride that stands on its own which allows the guest to make up their own stories for it? Um, and all the way through the process until opening day, it's my job as the creative director to protect the creative intent. So the thing I sold the client on day one, it's this launched roller coaster for teenagers with this brand and look like this. On opening day, the audio, the smells, the sights, the set decoration, the design, the architecture, operations, operations is important, something we haven't spoken about, um, but the ride can operate properly and get the desired throughput through. Everything is seamless and that's the responsibility I have. And it's a process that can last anywhere from zort to six months or all the way through to two or three years, depending on what it is. Well, I mean, if you want to get into operations more, I think that would be a valuable thing to discuss because when you're figuring out what is actually going to happen in the attraction, you have to time everything to load and unload you know, time and then no scene can really last longer than that. Does that have any restriction on you when you're creating an attraction? Yes, and it's something that should be considered from the very beginning. And I think oftentimes it's not. You can get carried away with a blue sky idea, which is wonderful. But in reality, if, if, you, if you have a client that's just invested, I don't know, let's say 14 million US dollars on a new roller coaster. And out of that, we have 5 million for theming, which is a very healthy budget. Normally you get about one to two million, um, but let's just say we've got five million. The roller coaster that has been sold to the client says this roller coaster can do 1,100 people per hour based on there being, I don't know, 34 seats on the roller coaster and there are two trains which dispatch every two minutes, one minute, whatever it is. So what I have to do is go, okay, well, we need to have a pre-show for this. So if there's a pre-show and I've got, I, I'm really bad at doing math on the spot, by the way, you can tell I'm a creative, so this is going to be nowhere accurate, but the principle's there. So we've got two roller coaster cars leaving the station every, every sort of two minutes and they hold 34 people on there. So if I'm doing a pre-show, 
I can do a pre-show that lasts two minutes as long as I can fit, what did I say, 24? I think it was like 34 minutes. you Let's said, 24. so <laughs> it, it doesn't matter. Um, I, can, I can fit two train loads into that area comfortably. So when that pre-show that's two minutes long ends, the doors open and it fills the roller coaster bays for two cars full of a full train. And that's the same for any other pre-shows that we have previously before that. Now, if they say, well, we want to have a longer pre-show, okay, well, we need to build two pre-show rooms that can hold two roller coaster train loads, or we need to do one huge pre-show room that can hold four roller coaster train loads because you've gone from a two minute show to a four minute show. And this backs up all the way through the queue line because you are dealing with one of the most difficult things to predict and that's human behavior. How long is it going to take us to get, you know, 40, um, 48 people from the queue line holding bay into that pre-show, comfortably stand there to press the button to start it for that pre-show to finish and the doors to open for them to leave to actually get to the roller coaster bays themselves. So with that added onto it, our pre-show that we thought we needed to make content that's four minutes actually is a two minute pre-show because it takes a minute to get those people into the room and a minute to get them out of the room after. So all of this, the more people you add to a situation, the more complex complexity you're adding of that, that movement through the queue line. It also depends on where you put that pre-show and how close you put it to the actual dispatch of the roller coaster. You wouldn't really want to put it so close to the dispatch that you've got, you are really delivering the people to it. I think one of the most impressive roller coaster stations and pre-shows I've ever seen is on um, Barron in um, Efteling um, where they have a pre-show and the doors open actually into the loading bays of the roller coaster. As soon as those doors open you go on the ride and it, they, they seem to have got that show perfect. And this is critical information as designers that we need to know because if, if we're having content bespokely made for this roller coaster then I need to go to that content creator and say okay we have a show. I need uh, a pre-show that's just looping in the background and I need looping music. And this is for when guests are entering the area. So it's looping going dun and the room is in a pre-hold state. So we've still got that sound that's getting people's adrenaline ready that all something's happening, we're excited, maybe the room's a little bit dim. They all go into the room and the show host presses the button. So it does another loop of and then the, then the video starts playing and the animatronics go off and the smoke machines go off and the water squirts go off. Maybe there's a rumbling moving four, but that content's got to be two minutes long. So I don't want to then go to a client and say, we designed you a piece of content for three minutes but the problem is, is the three minutes is too long because you're not getting your 1,100 people per hour on your roller coaster. You're actually getting 800 to 900 an hour. The client's not going to be happy because the longer people are in queue lines for waiting, the less time they have enjoying the experience, but in the park buying food, spending money on drink and being able to have a good day on park by going on more attractions because I created a show that was three minutes when it really could only deal with two. 
operations then we talk about how do we design the roller coaster station to enable the staff most importantly to be safe when we're designing themed environments we want the roller coaster station to be let's just let's go back to our example of this sort of teenage attraction you want it to be dark you want it to be gloomy you want that suspense to be there but you've got to provide enough light to be safe and operational for the operators to be working around this equipment that's actually extremely dangerous and in reality very stupid you know a roller coaster car doesn't know to put its brakes on if someone's in front of it it, it doesn't it's not that clever yes we can design all of this stuff to say you know, if someone's on the track, it can't launch, it can't do this. But at some point, the whole point of a roller coaster is it's coasting. That's why they're called them. They're off the brakes. And the only way to stop it is it when it hits the brakes at the other end. So as designers and immersive designers, yes, we've got to design a roller coaster station. that has got the same music. Bump, da -da 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 da again. And then all the, the show hosts and operators put the guests in the seat as quickly and as efficiently and as safely as they possibly can. They've then got to go and stand in a designated area, which is if we were doing a dive machine, for instance, a Bonadieu Mabillard with no floor on it, that floor's got to, to move away. So we design pens for the operators to stand in. They put their finger on a button and that does a green light in the operators thing to say every single one of the operators is where they should be. We've got lasers and sensors on the PlayStation platform. No one is standing on these platforms at the moment. The operator presses the button and the floor moves away. Now, this is an interesting thing for designers. If you've got a roller coaster station that acts like this and everyone's behind air gates, so all of the customers are safely behind air gates, your operation staff are safely in pens. It's impossible for them to fall off or anything to happen. I can then start having the creative discussion. What can we do to the station now? Because if everybody's safe, in theory, I can turn all the lights out. I can add strobing effects. I can add content. I can, the floor drops away and smoke comes up from beneath and the roller coaster dramatically goes away into wherever it's going and the music gets louder. Animatronics can kind of go off to build the suspense. Now that's great for the people on the ride, but also imagine how exciting it is for people who are about to go on it. They have just seen this massive piece of machinery move off full of screaming guests, surrounded by all of this music, flashing lights, whatever it is. It enhances the guest experience and it can be done very, very cheaply. We're not talking about millions of pounds worth of theming here. We're just talking about a good scripted light show, good scripted audio and adding to that overall guest experience. Well, I mean, I think that that's, you know, an interesting conversation to have because, you know, do you want the guests, you know, to see that, you know, to build up anticipation of like, I'm about to do that, or do you want it to be a surprise? And I think that, you know, obviously depends on, you know, the story that you're trying to tell on that attraction, of course. Absolutely. But having people in the station ready to board the next train will increase your throughput. If that station's totally empty, like they were able to do on Baron, because they wanted to do exactly what you said, they wanted to hide the moment that the ride moves forward. Um, we did it on Oblivion in, in Alton Town, um, in um, Gardaland Resort, where the station has a full 
automated response after this the seats are put down the restraints are gone they press the button all the lights in the station start to strobe and flash and it says three two one go past the point of no return the gates open the smoke machine goes off and the and and the train leaves the station um those little details again which are pretty inexpensive to do make something very unique it makes a ride very bespoke Whereas if a competing operator down the road has the same roller coaster that you've got, yours is different because of the narrative and the story and everything else that happens on the experience that makes it not uh, a B&M dive coaster anymore. It makes it into the brand that you are selling, which is that's what the important thing is. These, these, the, the clients and operators, investors put money into these attractions and rides because they want people to come. It's my job to make it unique and bespoke so they can sell it. And what we're talking about now is all of these little details that after we've sold it and people come to it, they tell their friends, you have to go on it and do it yourself. This isn't like the one down the road. This isn't like the one that you've been on in America. No one's ever been on anything quite like this before. And my job as a designer and, and as a consultant in, the, in theme parks is, the responsibility I have to my clients to give them product that is off the shelf that a lot of people have, but make it unique and bespoke to them. You know, and they might say, well, if we have $10 million to spend on a roller coaster, what's the biggest, scariest, you know, roller coaster that we can buy for $10 million as opposed to $5 million roller coaster with $5 million of theming, you know, might be more exciting and might be a more thrilling thing, even if it has less loops or technically a shorter experience, like you were saying with the two minute pre-show, you know, now instead of it being a 20 second roller coaster, it's a two minute and 20 second experience, as opposed to a one that doesn't have any theming, it's 15 seconds long. I agree. And I think there's a valuable discussion in that for the future of theme park design. The audience doesn't want to go bigger and faster anymore. We've done that. You know, we've got crazy rides out there that, that just go extremely fast and they're very high and you know with very minimal stuff going on it so the park can say well we've broken this record and we've done this i think with with in-home entertainment virtual reality uh, netflix and all of this we're bombarded by storytelling we're bombarded by media and what people really want is to have an experience a positive experience that they can go and and share on social media and say look i did this look how great i am there's a lot of narcissism now when it comes to everything that we kind of do which is which is fine you know there's definitely a place for it and you're absolutely right there's there's no difference i mean i'm going to use an example of a ride here which i i, I appreciate how much it cost but we can simplify that. But Hagrid's motorcycle journey at uh, Universal Studios, it's probably one of the best examples of a themed sort of experience, not just a roller coaster. Um, it, you go on a, on a journey and you, you sit on motorbikes and regardless if, it's a, if it was a, on a roller coaster or a flying theater or a 4D motion based platform, the experience and adventure that it takes you on is very, very compelling. So if we were to look at that attraction and half the size of it and still use an interwing sort of tire launch with an off the shelf chassis on it because motorbikes are very expensive, you create rides that are low to the ground. They have a lot of exciting passing points with scenery, waterfall, lakes, and 
you know, quite quickly we can invent a story about sprites or fairies or, or, or whatever it is where there's a launch section in the dark which we projection map around the whole thing where we turn into a fairy and we fly across the fields and through waterfalls, over valleys, through hedgerows and all of these wonderful fantasy things. We're not breaking the bank with something like this, it's just well landscaped well thought out and can create an experience which can take people into whole new worlds that's kind of what we do and i think that's where we should be going in the future of not looking at roller coasters or indeed any attraction as come and do this you'll be great we need to look at the whole area the whole theme park experience and the whole land experience how do we fit this roller coaster into the landscape that it makes is much fun for people riding, for those people watching off-ride. How can we use our theming in a clever way, this big theming, where we could create a giant flower that the, the, the attraction explodes out of, but that flower is as pleasurable and exciting to look at if the roller coaster is running or if it's not. It's adding to that theming. And I think also because of where we are in society that we want to spend our time in, in areas that are pleasant, are relaxing, and we can orchestrate our family memories together in those places. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a landscape architect as well. I don't just design attractions. I look at the whole area that it sits in and it surrounds in. You know, we're putting in these big monstrous pieces of tech. How do we get people close to it? How do we design theming that works with it? Can we create a moment that when the roller coaster passes over an object that something triggers water cannons so let's, let's just let's just have another idea that we've got a tiki themed sort of roller coaster and there's like a little wet area and whatnot and these tiki's there they're talking to each other and they're, they're having fun and whatever it is the roller coaster goes past them and the roller coaster could be a stand-up roller coaster where people are on surfboards okay they hit the water down splash zone everyone gets wet but it also gets these tiki heads wet as well who are just going oh they're you know, disgraceful you know tiki wet tiki wet tiki don't like or whatever and then the tiki spit water out of their mouths they got so wet from the splash of this surfboard roller coaster going through and they were talking to the guests watching them that they've got full of water in their mouths and those tiki heads spit water at the guests who are standing there watching. We've now created a link where the people were amazed by the roller coaster going past. Some people wanted to get wet by it, but the actual land that it sits in is communicating with the activity that's happening in that area at that time. That's when we start to create these immersive worlds that feel alive because of the little details we put in there that make it special. And again, we're not talking about breaking the bank here with these tiki heads. We're just we're talking about something that's quite subtle, um, quite affordable, but has a place in the law of the land and adds extra added bonus to it because people will take their photos next to it. They will videotape themselves next to it and they will share it on social media where those tiki heads become something you have to come and see. People aren't coming to go on the roller coaster anymore. They're coming to see the tiki heads. That's the value of, of theming and story and, and, and my job is to protect that creative intent. And what I mean by that is projects change and they shift, things happen. When you're on site, you may, you may have thought that you were building on clay and in fact you end up building on sand, which means the foundations of your roller coaster have to go a lot deeper than you thought they would have to. 
So then the project gets hit by an extra million pound that's got to come out of somewhere. So the five million budget we were talking about for theming has now gone down to four, all gone down to three, all gone down to two, because unfortunately it's the thing that gets hit first. And it, we could argue it shouldn't, but it is because the client's going to go, well, I need the roller coaster. That's my big project, my big product. And because it's over budget now, I need to take the money from somewhere. So when those conversations happen, you know, you have to be very professional about it and you have to look at the overall project and go, okay, I've still got to deliver a theme. I've still got to deliver a storyline, but we're now two million down. If I believe that those tiki heads have got a big presence in the land's raw and the attraction and it's going to drive visitation, it's going to be a real pinch point point. I will defend it until my dying breath that they should stay there and remain there. And that's that's just something from experience where you know what to keep and what you need to cut back. I think we can do one last question here. How is the immersive design field different in reality than someone would think from the outside perspective? Uh, it's it is it is a it's a question that that I get I get asked the most as well. And you know every single time I get asked it, there's there's no real simple answer. Um, this industry requires people to be very passionate about what it is that they do and what field that they want to go into. There are many, many, many options from content creation, as you're saying, 3D magic, 3D image creating, concept, story writers, writers, show directors, lighting technicians. I always, I always say to people, and I teach, the way I teach when I do student work with students is what are you passionate about what is it that gets you out of bed at the weekend that makes you sit in front of your computer or tinker in your garage or go out and do something because if you're passionate about something you've got a better chance of being great in it and doing it because you are interested in it so it always starts kind of there once you've worked out what your passion is then you will look, you will naturally already start learning everything that there is to do with it so um for instance my journey was uh i was i started by designing computer game levels um i'm going to show my age here but i started on designing computer game levels for a game called outlaws and it was created by lucas arts and uh, it had a level creator with it and i started designing on it then I started designing levels for Counter-Strike. That really got me interested in architecture, where I went to university and I, I studied uh, architecture venue design, which gave me a technical background. And I actually worked in architecture for seven years, designing retail stores, um, which gave me a great advantage when it comes to designing theme park attractions, because I understand about dimensions. I understand if it can be built. I can understand all of these different things. Then, as I was doing that, I, 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 I was a story writer, story writer when I was a storyteller, and I wanted to deliver my stories in a, in a theme park. It's what I've always kind of wanted to do. So I would go to any sort of event I could, TA events, IAPA events, any sort of con conventions that are going on and talking to people, volunteering at your local theatre when they're open again. You know, can I do anything to help you? is always the thing you walk up to people, what can I do to help you? Oh, well, we work on the lighting, you won't be interested in that. 
well, go and have a go. It's just a day. You know, learn about the lighting, learn about DMX, learn about the control panels, and then, then start to analyze all of these different things. How does the sound work? How does the set design work? How, why are people painting the way that they are? Visit attractions as much as you can. Take photos, analyze the attractions, be critical, but also be fair. And what I mean by that is when you go and visit an attraction and you look at it and you go, well, I didn't really enjoy that. Take a step back, look at everything that's been done on it, look at the sound and analyze it. Instead of saying, well, I didn't like it, what would you do differently to make that experience better? How would you influence that attraction to encourage people to engage with the theming or the interactives? How would you change it to make it better? And start doing design, start drawing it, start putting it together. I then, so that was kind of how I kind of started, but then I then, then I went to California and I, I met a guy called Jerry Jewell who was running a program called Scary You at the time and he was building horror houses and teaching students on how to do it. And that's where I learned about animatronics and I learned about lighting and I learned about show control and, and how when you press a button something else happens. I bought those back, the, that information and learnings back to the United Kingdom where I started designing my own horror attractions. And uh, I was in the right place at the right time where I had an attraction called Slasher and I presented it to a farmer who wanted to build a horror event and he decided to build it and I used all of those things that I'd learned and built Slasher and that was really the start of my career because after that it rolled into getting a job at Merlin Entertainment. Um, so a lot of it is you don't know who you're talking to, you don't know who you're speaking to, but the only reason I got to where I am today is because I have a drive and a passion with one very simple thing that, that drives me. I do what I do to make the world a better place through themed entertainment. That is what I'm passionate about. That is what drives me. And that is why I like to share it with everyone and anyone who will listen to me ramble on. It's not a direct answer, but it's the best one I can give. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that that's a, a great segue into, you know, me asking where can people go to connect with you? You know, if they want to discuss this further with you, uh, what's the best way? I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn um, or you can visit our website, which is www.fireflycreations.uk. Okay, so that's www.fireflycreations.uk. And there's a form on there, our email's on there. And yeah, um, reach out, get in touch. Let's have a chat. All right. That sounds good. So I just wanted to, you know, thank you for taking the time out to talk with me and having this really interesting conversation. Anything else you want to say before we head out? You're welcome. It's a pleasure. And I, I think there's one thing that I'm saying to everyone right now, um, and probably this is going to date your, your, your podcast, so I apologize. But while everything seems to be very dark at the moment, it seems like there's no light at the end of the tunnel. And for everyone in the industry that has been hurt and damaged by this, and they feel like the light will never come back. Just remember that when the light does come back, people will need themed entertainment more than they've ever done before. They will need to connect with humanity again. They will need to dance and sing and laugh together. They will want to enjoy the world that has to offer. 
So when the world is ready, we will all be there ready and willing to make it a better place again. I think that's an excellent message. Thank you so much. Welcome. Thank you for listening to the Immersive Design Podcast. I've been your host, Brian McGowan. I hope that you enjoyed our interview with creative director, Andrew Porter. I have a few more interviews coming up. Creative director, Zane Yench, and Stacey Barton, a show writer at Disney. We also have a variety of episodes where we're going to take an in-depth academic look into our favorite attractions. If those sound interesting, please make sure to subscribe. Hope to see you again soon.